Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Genesis 50, beginning at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Thank you very much, Susan, for reading for us, and good morning again. It is very good to see you. Do keep your Bibles open at Genesis 50, it's page 57 in the Pew Bibles, and also, there's a handout which was stuffed in, into the bundle you received on the way in. You might find that helpful to have to hand over the next few moments. Let me pray for all of us as we look at God's word together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that because of the Lord Jesus, as we trust in him, we have a brilliant, confident future And I pray that you would stir us once again with great joy in that future. And we pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, as we come to the end of our series looking at the life and family of Jacob, we are confronted with a final question that that each of us must wrestle with in our own lives The question is this, how do we cope with past sin? As we look back over our lives, how do we cope with poor decisions that we have made in the past? How do we cope with words that we have spoken that have hurt those around us that we love? How do we hurt with, cope with the people who we've wronged and, and hurt with, um, with failures to, to love and care for the people that we should have done? How do we cope with the, the consequences of our sin? 
with the, with the wrongs that we, we can't undo and put right. For some of us, we try to bury our past sins. We, we try to forget about them. And certainly in this day and age, with um, the, the sort of progress of social media, we are told that is the way to live your life. You, you ignore the bad stuff and you present to the world the good stuff. And so on social media, as you look around at people's lives, you see smiles and joy and happiness. You see experiences that are full of life and pleasure. And you don't see the hurt and agony of past sin. If you do see people's history on, on, on social media, it's normally good history, happy memories, things to celebrate, not the, the kind of mistakes and terrible things of the past. And in that climate we live in now, as we drink it in, and as we try hard to bury our sin, we can, we can almost just about make ourselves forget the things that we have done in the past. We can live so much in the moment that we can only think about those things and we, we bury the sin of the past. But like a, a child with a beach ball at the seaside, our efforts to bury our sin under the surface doesn't last. It, it always comes up somehow. And we'll see this morning that at some point in our lives, each of us will have that moment when our, our buried sins will be brought out into the light. How do we cope with past sin? Perhaps others of us here this morning have the opposite experience. We feel buried by our past sin. Our past sin is so much in our faces, in our conscious daily thoughts, that we feel just overwhelmed by the mistakes we've made in the past. We are so mindful of the shame and guilt of the things we've done that we just feel crushed by our sin. I know in my own life that um, not every day, but there are moments when I could be singing a, a Christian song with Christians at, at church one Sunday, or I could be going for a walk or spending time with friends, and then just out of the blue, this thought comes into my mind, a recollection of a past sin, and the, the waves of shame and guilt can just come crashing over me, and it's easy to feel buried by the reality of past sin. And so, can I ask this morning, how do we cope with past sin? That's the issue before us this morning. And I say that because of how our reading begins. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him. It's now been 17 years. 17 years of the family being reunited together. 17 years since that moment the brothers bowed down before Joseph and he said, it's me, and they they hugged and they wept together. 17 years where those wrongs and sins have yet to be properly dealt with. The death of dad, Jacob, triggers a crisis. Whilst he was alive, he was the the glue that held this messed up family together. But now that dad is dead, those old wrongs and sins that have been pushed beneath the surface for 17 years, they are well and truly coming back up to the surface. 
And what happens next gives us wonderful news as we cope with past sin. You'll see in the handout, our first thing is this. God's forgiveness is better than we think. Look at verse 15 again. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? And the sons have every right to be worried because the wrongs they did to Joseph were were serious wrongs. They hated him. They were jealous. They pretended to be planning to kill him. And then, of course, they sold him as a slave to Egypt and they lied about his fate in order to avoid there being a rescue party to be sent after him. And whichever way you cut it, they have done serious wrongs to him. And it's clear from what happens next that they, they simply cannot believe that after all they've done to Joseph, that he has actually forgiven them. They come up with a plan. They send a letter to Joseph, verse 16. Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. That's the plan, a letter from dad. There's, there's no indication that actually Jacob ever said those words. It's the brothers clutching at straws. But they are desperate. But they're also totally wrong about their brother, Joseph. When he gets the letter, he, he weeps again. He weeps because he realizes in this letter that his brothers still do not get the fact that he has actually, truly, totally, finally forgiven his brothers for all their wrongdoing. And so he weeps at how far back they are. Well, verse 18, after the letter is sent, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves they said. The best the brothers can now hope for is to be allowed to survive on the basis of being slaves under Joseph. That's their best outcome. But look at how Joseph responds. Verse 19. Don't be afraid. Verse 21, so then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph is not angry. He has not been stewing in a pot of revenge, waiting for his dad to die for 17 years, so that now he can enact his revenge on the brothers. Nor was it like when I was a kid, you know, when, when, when siblings fight with one another and they have a quarrel, and then mum or dad comes and says, right, you lot, sort it out, say sorry, make up, and you stand there going, I'm really sorry. It's not that at all, is it? This response from, from Joseph is wholehearted, it's unprovoked. He, he reassures the brothers 
I'll care for you and your family. I really do love you. I, I do forgive you. It's okay. We are family again. This forgiveness is far better than the brothers expected. It's great news for them, but as we cope with our past sin over 3,000 years later, what does it mean for us? The answer is that it's great news for us as well. We've been seeing these last few weeks that Joseph is God's man, God's appointed man, the man through whom he would rule over this family and save them, bringing them salvation. He is God's man. And as we see Joseph, we are being prepared for God's ultimate chosen man who would come into the world many centuries later. As we see Joseph, we are being prepared to understand and rejoice in the work of the Lord Jesus, God's ultimate chosen man, the man that God has set apart to rule over his people and to save them. And we are seeing here how God's chosen man responds to those who repent of their sins. And in Jesus, we discover God's forgiveness is far better than we expected. I was reminded this week of the story of the prodigal son in Luke's gospel. Uh, That wretched son who disowned his father and and went away with the inheritance and spent it all in wild living and depravity. And when he hit rock bottom and he came to his senses, he realized that that he was being a fool. He he, he wanted to go home, but as he went back, remember as he rehearsed what he would say to his father, his his, his best hope was to say to his father, let me back as a slave. That was his best hope. Of course, we know what actually happened. He was welcomed back with hugs and tears and with a great banquet because God's forgiveness is greater than we think. Many of us struggle to believe this. In our Christian life, our best hope from God is that he will welcome us back as slaves And when you start to unpack so much of what motivates Christians and their living now, it can so easily slip back into a sort of slave dynamic where we think that in order to secure the favor of our master God, we have to please him with our hard efforts to somehow earn our way into his good books because we've done so many bad things that it must be that way. And so when you unpack why we read our Bibles and why we pray and why we come to church on a Sunday and why we, we serve on rotors and try to do the right thing. I'm sure there's lots of reasons why, but so often there's a, a strand of those motives, which is the strand of the slave trying to earn favor with our God. But God's forgiveness is better than we think. He doesn't take us back as slaves, but as family. And like the father and the prodigal son, God doesn't just tolerate our existence. He reassures us with his love and showers us with kindness and blessing. For those of us who try to cope with our past sin by burying it, well, this is what the brothers did. So for for 22 years, they kept it a secret from dad 
And then after that, for the next 17 years, whilst in Egypt, although they were back with Joseph, we don't read anywhere in the narrative that they actually owned up to what they'd done to Joseph. There was this sort of uneasy dynamic of this thing buried beneath the surface in the family. They, they were trying to keep it below the surface, you see. And they must have known for 17 years that this day would come when dad died. That they could bury it for a while, but when dad dies, this whole thing's going to come out in the open. This day was hanging over them for years. You can imagine it robbing them of security and life and joy in that family. They knew that one day they'd have to stand before God's man, the man they had betrayed and rejected. And the same is true for every human. As much as we might bury our sin, a day is coming when each of us will have to stand before God's chosen man, the man we have betrayed and rejected. And as much as we might try to live in the moment and bury our sin, that day will come, the day of exposure before him. And the day the brothers feared most, that day of exposure, they seized it and came before Joseph. They confessed their sin. But in that moment, they discovered how much Joseph had forgiven them. And before Christ returns, we have the opportunity to avail ourselves of God's forgiveness, to not bury our sin, but to confess it and discover forgiveness. It's one of the reasons why here at Fullwood Church, Sunday after Sunday, we make a point of having a moment of public confession for our sins. And I've been struck how over the years, many people have come to me genuinely wondering why we do confess our sins here at Fullwood. Some have said that they feel it's a bit heavy on a Sunday, it makes us feel bad about ourselves or, or it leaves us with a sense of guilt that we have this moment of public confession. Well, is it the right tone for this sort of gathering like this? Well, here's why we do it. Remembering, owning, and confessing our sin is the door we must pass through in order to take our seat at the banquet of God's gracious forgiveness. It's the door the brothers had to walk through to realize that their, God's forgiveness was greater than they expected, and it's true for us that we have to acknowledge and own our sin before we can come to the place where we realize how good God's forgiveness is. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, and I take it it was to be a daily prayer for them, in the middle of the prayer, he said that we are to confess our sins, ask our Father to forgive us. And I hope it is part of our DNA as Christians, hardwired into our kind of daily rhythms, that part of our relationship with our Father is to own our sin because it's the, it's the doorway into remembering daily, wonderfully, that we are forgiven because of God's grace. The, the, the day we fear most, the, the sin coming out, is actually the day we come to discover how much we are forgiven by our Heavenly Father. But what about those times when, rather than burying our sin, we feel buried by it? I wonder if there are some here today who feel like those brothers, having written the letter on their way to meet Joseph, utterly full of fear, petrified, knowing that they have done wrong, 
fearing the worst. I wonder if that is our daily experience of, of, of knowing God, that we feel constantly under that sort of threat. We know we've done things wrong in the past. We know that the consequences of our sin are terrible. Well, please know this morning that God's forgiveness is better than we think. The story of Joseph doesn't tell us how God could possibly forgive. And Joseph himself says, am I in the place of God? He is not God. He can't be the one who ultimately forgives sin. But as we look forward in the New Testament, we find the one who is God, who comes into the world, who does have the authority to forgive sins once and for all. And he does it by dying on the cross, swapping his perfect, innocent life for our sin-riddled life, clothing us in his righteousness and that is how Joseph points us forward to the Lord Jesus. In him, God's forgiveness is better than we think. Well, next, God's sovereignty is greater than we think. One of the hard things about coping with past sin that we've committed is knowing that our sin has consequences that our sin impacts the people around us, that our sin is so often not just an isolated thing, but it it spills over it, causing damage to others. And that in itself can be one of the hard things about coping with past mistakes. Well, look at how Joseph responds in the most extraordinary way to his brothers. Verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We've already thought about the brothers' harm. They, 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 they did intend to harm Joseph terribly in their jealousy and anger. And because of their harm, Joseph ended up being a slave himself for 14 years. And Joseph will never get those 14 years back Forever, they will be sort of lost years, if you like, in Joseph's life. How do you live with that, knowing that your sin has caused that kind of impact on someone else? When I was younger, I used to go to the doctor for you know, all the usual things like injections and so on. And um, I used to hate the doctor, he's a scary, scary person. And um, if I behaved myself and allowed the injection to take place, then afterwards I used to get a, a, you know, a sweet or a, a lollipop or something like that. And um, I think the deal was, it was a compensation for good behavior, for going through the bad stuff. So the, the bad stuff was the, um, the, the, the injection or the checkup, and the compensation was the good thing of the sweet afterwards. And I guess the logic was that the, the sweet kind of was enough to compensate for the the ordeal of going to see the doctor, and so next time I would go willingly and so on, and that, that's kind of how it worked. It was a cheap ploy, and it totally worked for me. Now, it would be easy to think that what Joseph is saying to his brothers is a form of compensation. He says to the brothers, yeah, you did me terrible harm, but it's okay because it's all worked out all right in the end. So, yeah, I had 14 years in prison, which is rubbish. But after that, I became prime minister of Egypt, which is brilliant. And also, I was able to provide grain in the famine to save the world, which is also wonderful. And so, um, it's compensation. There, there was some rubbish stuff that you did to me, and then God did some great stuff, 
And overall, as I look back over my life, I'll let you off because the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff. And so it's okay, I'm not angry with you. Do you see how the kind of, we might think it's compensation going on? Of course, what, what happens if we can't see how our sin is being compensated in someone's life with good things? It doesn't work then, does it? But that's not what Joseph is saying. He is saying that God has actually taken the harm, the bad things, and he has used that harm for good. That his good overall purposes have come about because of the harm of the brothers. It's not compensation. It's total sovereign control using even sin to bring about great good. Now, please don't mishear me. God is not responsible for the harm caused by the brothers. It was their sin, their fault. But God is so sovereign, so wise, so able, so on top of this world that he is able to so weave through his plans, including the sin of others, that his good purposes always come about in this world for his people. And so Joseph was able to say to his brothers, it's okay, I forgive you. And part of the, the logic that Joseph owns is that God has used their sin to bring about great good. And just in case we think this is too good to be true, do take your Bibles and flick forward to another famous example of how God has used wickedness to achieve good. So Acts chapter two, which is page 1093 of the Pew Bibles, 1093. And it's Acts chapter two, verse 23. This is many centuries later, and the apostle Peter is explaining to the crowds on Pentecost how to understand the fact that they have put to death God's chosen man, the Lord Jesus. And verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to, to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Jesus would not have died, humanly speaking, unless wicked men had not put him to death. But God's good plan of salvation for this world is that his son would die for us in order to be that perfect sacrifice for us. And so God has used the wickedness of humans to achieve his eternal good plan for the world. It's the same dynamic that Joseph explains all those centuries ago. And so for us this morning, the greatest sin that we could ever commit and have committed is the betrayal, the denial, the rejection of God's chosen man. But we look to how God is achieved his salvation, and we see how he's brought great good out of a world that denies Jesus. But for those of us today who struggle with the thought that some past sin has done irreconcilable damage that can never be undone, then take great heart from Genesis 50, 
we're back there again, having looked at Acts 2. In Genesis 50, our sin is serious. Our sin does have consequences in this life. Our sin does change things. It changes relationships. But can we see in Genesis 50 that our sin is never outside of God's sovereign control and that he is actively using our mistakes in his great wisdom to bring about good in our lives and in the lives of others. And even if we cannot understand it now, I take it one day we will see how he was able to use our mistakes, our sin, for good. And just as an aside, I think there's great help here for us as we try to forgive others. We are called to forgive as God forgave us. And when we are wronged by others, and it's almost impossible, I think, in this broken world not to be wronged by others, one of the things that will help us forgive is the confidence that other people's sin does not spoil God's good plan for us. That he is somehow able to go on working in all the mess that we encounter to go on bringing about great good for us. He is that sovereign, that wise, that powerful. And so it helps us to forgive when we are the victims of others' sin. God's sovereignty is greater than we think. Finally, very quickly, God's ending is more certain than we think. After the rather awkward conversation between Joseph and his brothers, the years roll on. And now, finally, as Joseph nears his own death, there's one final and very significant conversation. And we pick it up in verse 34. Sorry, verse 24 of Genesis 50. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham Isaac and Jacob. And such was Joseph's confidence that verse 25, he he makes his family swear to bring his bones up with them when they go. And we've been looking at why this matters so much these last few weeks because in and behind these great men of faith in the Old Testament, there was this enduring confidence that their home was the promised land. They they must get back there, whether physically alive or, or dead, but buried there Because their hope wasn't just in that physical square patch of land in the promised land, but their hope was in the heavenly city to come, the new creation. And here again, just as Jacob last week, Joseph is utterly confident that God's story ends with him and the family getting out of the foreign land of Egypt up to the promised lands, a foretaste, a picture of their ultimate arrival into the new land of the new creation. And we've been looking at this wonderful promise from a number of angles these last few weeks, but here this morning, the particular angle for us is to see that it's in the context of the brothers' sin and mistakes. This final passage is all about how much wrong the brothers have done, and yet, even still, Joseph says, God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land. In other words, God has not had enough of you. He's not done with you. You haven't sinned so much that he's going to push you to one side and say, well, I've had it with you people. Wonderfully, he's going to come to the aid of this broken, messed up family. He's going to bring them up out of that promised land to the new creation. And it's a great comfort to us here this morning as we cope with our past sin 
God will not say to us, I've had enough of you. God's ending is better than we think. Just think about this story as we come to the end of the story and fit together all the broken pieces of the, of the story. It began with uh, the dad's favoritism, the brother's jealousy and hatred of Joseph, their betrayal, their lies. There was Judah's hard-heartedness and his incest with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. There was Potiphar's wife and her treachery, the, the baker and the butler and, and their forgetfulness of Joseph and his dreams. There was the graph that went up and down in Joseph's life. There was the, the sunshine and frost of Joseph as he managed his family in their transformation. There was the famine, the, the grain, the, the relocation from home down to Egypt and arriving into Goshan and the promised um, lushness of that land. In all the crazy, unexpected twists and turns of a bunch of sinners living in a broken and fallen world, here is the final comment. God will surely come to your aid. And in our own messy lives, our, our twistedness, our sin, the brokenness, God's plan is still on track. He's not given up on us. And at just the right time, he will come to our aid he will take us out of the exile of this broken world, taking us home to the new creation. He will not abandon us or forget us. And so when we feel burdened by our sin, buried by it, take heart. God's ending is more certain than we think. And as we finish, a day is coming when we will all stand face to face with God's chosen man. And we might deny it, we might try to ignore it, but it will come. And on our own, it is a day that we should all dread. But for those who trust in Jesus, who, who confess their sin now and turn to him, it'll be a, a far better day than we could possibly hope or imagine. Because God's faithfulness, his sovereignty, his ending, these things are far greater than we think. So let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. As we think about our past sin, as we think about the consequences of that sin in the lives of others, Father, we Thank you for your extraordinary, complete, total forgiveness. Father, please help us, please free us from a slave mentality and show us what we really are, sons loved by you. Father, please help us to see how your sovereign hand is at work even through our mistakes. And please reassure us of that ending in the new creation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a joy to spend these last eight weeks in the story of Jacob and his family. And as, as we come to a close to our, in our series, we've seen some, some huge themes for us to engage with. God's sovereignty at work in a broken world. And uh, we're, we're going to continue this morning by hearing a, a song sung to us. This will be a solo for us just to listen to. 
And it's a song that picks up brilliantly some of the themes we've been thinking about in Genesis. And can I encourage you, as you listen to these words, to, to take a moment just to reflect on the things you've been learning, maybe to speak to our Heavenly Father, thanking Him for His sovereignty and care, but, but not rushing away from the things we've been learning, but taking time to own them. So just use this moment in that way and enjoy the wonderful truth we're going to hear sung to us.